Welcome to the QuackCast, a review of supplements, complementary, and alternative medicine, i.e. scams. References for this podcast can be found at Science-Based Medicine. Links to my growing multimedia empire of blogs, books, and podcasts can be found at edgydoc.com. And if you like this sort of podcast, I do another alternative medicine podcast, Sisyphus Speaks. It's the podcast of the Society for Science-Based Medicine, where you will find a twice-a-week short essay, and every Sunday-ish, sometimes it's Monday, a review of the week in pseudomedicine. This is the 209th QuackCast, and it's called Influenza Vaccine and Healthcare Workers, More Than One Way to Skin a Literature. Those of you listening to Podcast 208 may remember I hinted at an influenza vaccine podcast. This is it. I work in a teaching hospital. That means there are often residents and medical students involved in the care of patients. So when I get a consult, not only do I have to give my assessment and plan, I try and justify that assessment and plan with the literature. But the literature is often not so clear-cut. There are those consults where my conclusion has the force and authority of the Ten Commandments, which is perhaps a bad metaphor, considering how people follow and understand the Ten Commandments. Some consults, like the treatment of MSSA endocarditis, result in an assessment and plan that has a big T truth. Others, like how best to treat MRSA endocarditis, eh, lots of depends, no incontinence jokes here please, and requires an interpretation of a less than straightforward literature. These are the times I have to offer my best synthesis of the data, but my opinion is still likely better than most. Sometimes I have little to guide me. I have a weird bug in a weird place and no literature outside of a few case reports. All I have is a bacterial antibiotic sensitivity pattern, sometimes, and hope. And sometimes I got nothing. I get asked a question that has no real answer, such as, is the fever from infection? I don't know. And I let the house staff know that my opinion is just that, an opinion informed by experience and bias, not evidence, but an opinion. And oddly, others often defer to my advice. It is kind of scary. One of the few advantages of being old and gray, it gives the illusion of wisdom. I've had a couple patients in the last year tell me how glad they were to have an old doctor take care of them, somebody who had experience. And I'll be 420 in dog years this spring. I often say that being a medical subspecialist is being ignorant with style and authorita. But I need to be explicit when my opinion is just my opinion. Sometimes papers are opinion wrapped in data, which is nice, as this is just what this podcast is. But the medical literature, I think, tends to be read with the assumption that the journal articles were written without bias, the opposite of a blog. Not always. Take Influenza Vaccination of Healthcare Workers, Critical Analysis of the Evidence for Patient Benefit Underpinning Policies of Enforcement. They reviewed the studies to date on the benefits of healthcare worker influenza vaccine and conclude, quote, the four RCTs, randomized clinical trials, underpinning policies of enforced healthcare worker influenza vaccination attribute implausibly large reductions in patient risk to healthcare worker vaccination, casting serious doubts on their validity. The impression that unvaccinated healthcare workers place their patients at great influenza peril is exaggerated. 
Instead, the healthcare worker attributable risk and vaccine preventable fraction both remain unknown, and the number needed to treat to achieve patient benefit still requires better understanding. Although current scientific data are inadequate to support the ethical implementation of enforced healthcare worker influenza vaccination, they do not refute approaches to support voluntary vaccination or other more broadly protective practices, such as staying at home or masking when acutely ill. The studies, all done in long-term care facilities, also known as nursing homes, are admittedly rather weak tea when taken in isolation from the rest of the vaccination literature. But it is the data we have. And they don't include influenza vaccination of healthcare workers in acute care hospitals, a case control study of its effects on hospital-acquired influenza among patients from 2012, probably because it wasn't a randomized controlled trial, and maybe because it didn't support their contention. The only study in hospitals, it did demonstrate benefit from healthcare worker influenza vaccination. The median proportion of vaccinated HCW in these units was 11.5% for cases versus 36.1% for controls. And 21 controls were vaccinated against influenza in the current season. Conclusions, our observational study indicates a shielding effect of more than 35% of vaccinated healthcare workers on healthcare-associated infections among patients in acute care units. The authors of the review do declare their bias behind the review up front. Quote, the ethical premise of mandatory HCW influenza vaccination critically hinges upon the valid demonstration of patient benefit substantial enough to justify infringement of the personal rights of HCWs who would otherwise choose not to receive influenza vaccine each year. I wonder then, what is substantial enough? But me? I start with an entirely different premise or bias for my take on the literature. I approach the problem from a patient safety perspective, and I always start from the issue of patient harm. It's my duty as a physician to always put my patient first. And what is the result of hospital-acquired influenza? The answer? Death. Characteristics of patients with hospital-acquired influenza A admitted to the intensive care unit. Conclusion. Influenza A infection acquired in the hospital is an independent risk factor for death in critically ill patients admitted to the ICU. And, quote, in children with severe viral respiratory infection, hospital acquisition of infection is associated with increased mortality, even after adjusting for chronic medical conditions that predispose to an increased risk of complications from viral illness. And, Influenza virus pneumonia and attributed mortality during the active infection was observed in patients with lymphocytopenia at onset. Others have demonstrated less mortality in retrospective studies, but they all show the same thing. Getting the influenza in the hospital increases your risk of dying. And there's still all the patient morbidity of a week or two of influenza. But killing patients by giving them influenza is, to my mind, a bad thing. What is an insubstantial number of deaths from flu acquired from healthcare workers such that no vaccination is required? For me, zero. Now, how often does hospital-acquired influenza happen? Not that often. 
quote, the overall incidence of hospital-acquired respiratory viral infection was 3.9 cases per 100,000 admitted patients. Rhinovirus was the most common virus, 30%, followed by influenza, 17.6, and parainfluenza, 15.6. Of course, knowing that influenza is acquired in the hospital is one thing, and knowing that the patient acquired influenza from a healthcare provider is quite another. Often, we do not know just where the patient acquired their influenza. Quote, unobservable transmission was the main cause of healthcare-associated ILI transmission, suggesting that symptom-based control measures alone might not prevent hospital outbreaks. And more exposure to others is worse than less. Quote, hospitalization and double occupancy beds and the risk of hospital-acquired influenza were assessed prospectively. The incidence was 2 for double rooms versus 0.7 in single occupancy rooms. I always like it in the hospital. They call it semi-private. Yeah, I'm going to go to the Hilton and get a semi-private room. So hospital-acquired influenza is rare, difficult to determine the source, can be fatal, results in morbidity, and is hard to control. And I will note here that there is often an odd disconnect between the morbidity and mortality from hospital-acquired infections and taking responsibility for that morbidity and mortality. I suspect it is in part why infection control and prevention guidelines are sometimes forgotten or ignored. There is certainly an institutional responsibility. In my hospitals, we deep dive every infection, but there's just not this personal responsibility as would occur if there was a fatal overdose or a doctor put a chest tube trocar through the heart. If we could only know who passed on the organism that caused the infection and when it occurred, guilt and responsibility would be so much simpler. So who gave the patient the influenza that killed her? We never know. And it takes the edge off of responsibility and the compulsion to maximize patient safety. In my own experience, I am not immune to the dangers of anecdotes. And in my 27 years of infection control, we have had one influenza outbreak that we could credit to a healthcare worker who was unvaccinated, who came down with symptoms in the middle of the 12-hour shift and exposed several patients before he could go home. No one died, although there was significant morbidity with several patients receiving an extra week or two in the hospital. And to the best of my memory, we have never had a death from nosocomial influenza in my hospitals yet. And always remember that, quote, nearly half of healthcare workers with influenza were afebrile, no fever, prior to their diagnosis. Healthcare workers with respiratory symptoms but no fever may pose a risk of influenza transmission to patients and co-workers, making waiting for symptoms to intervene problematic. As a healthcare provider, the dominant ethical imperative is to protect my patients. It is the first law. A robot, no wait, a healthcare provider may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. As a healthcare provider, it's my patients who always take priority. But I'm old school that way. I wonder, is there a relatively effective way to prevent the spread of influenza? I would suggest the flu vaccine. I have written buckets on the flu vaccine over at Science-Based Medicine, so here is my summary. All the data points the same direction. The flu vaccine decreases the chance of acquiring the flu, and if a healthcare worker does not get the flu, they are not going to pass it on to their patients. 
and kill them. Plus, a vaccinated healthcare worker is potentially one less vector in the community, adding to herd immunity, such as it is with the flu. And it's very clear that when you vaccinate the vector, others don't get infected. It's true with pneumococcus. It's true with Haemophilus influenza. It's true of the HPV virus. That's being redundant. The second V is virus, I know. But when you vaccinate the vector for those infections, unvaccinated people as a population have a decrease in the same infections. Is the bang worth the buck? Well, that's a question I cannot answer. What is one life worth? We do a lot of interventions in the hospital to prevent complications that have a low probability from occurring, but have high morbidity and mortality. We have multiple interventions to prevent a wrong side surgery, although that happens very rarely. And if I have learned one thing in 30 years of infection control, there is no single intervention that will prevent infections. It is the summation of many interventions. I do think our primary moral imperative is to not kill our patients with vaccine-preventable illnesses, and that is the more important ethical imperative, not healthcare worker autonomy. And the medical literature taken as a whole shows that vaccination prevents spread of disease. But that's just me. It would be interesting to come up with a series of vignettes, like the trolley problem, to see where most people do stand with the ethics of healthcare worker vaccination. In the meantime, my suggestion, if you get admitted to the hospital, ask your healthcare worker if they've been vaccinated against the flu. And if they haven't, find another healthcare worker. And that ends the 209th podcast, The Quackcast. You can find my growing multimedia empire at edgydoc.com. My two books are available at Amazon, Puss Whisperer 1 and Puss Whisperer 2. And soon, sometime this year, my collected essays from science-based medicine are going to be released as a book. Ooh, won't that be fun? Otherwise, thanks for listening. Bye.